Hello and welcome to this week's Over the Farmgate podcast with me, Farmers Guardian's Features Editor, Emily Ashworth. This week is a Farming Can special. Farming Can is a consumer-facing campaign that aims to show the importance of agriculture across society. In this podcast, I speak to George Young from Essex, who has dramatically changed his farm to become more nature-focused. I also caught up with Farming Can food blogger, Jenny Jeffries, who has created multiple award-winning cookbooks based on recipes from UK farmers. This really is a great farm-to-play insight and goes to show just how fantastic farming really is. Nominate your auction market, cafe and auctioneer in this year's Marks of Heart Awards and get them recognised for the all-important service they provide for your farming community. Entries can be put forward by anyone. So to nominate now, visit britishfarmingawards.co.uk forward slash mth. Do you want to tell me about your farm and the journey back to it? Because obviously you worked outside agriculture beforehand, didn't you, before coming back? Yeah, so um, I've been farming now for nine years. I used to work in banking in London. Um, and got fed up at the age of 27 so thought it was about time to move back to the farm Um, at the time we were a very conventional arable farm so we grew three crops in a kind of rough six-year rotations that was uh, wheat rape and peas then essentially over the past nine years I've been taking it in quite a thoroughly different direction uh, to the one it's in now with kind of yeah properly integrated livestock um, lots of diverse uh, lays in the mix um, and some diversified cropping as well. Can you um, just explain what you mean when you say you've taken it in a different journey because obviously you've done quite a lot to uh, the system and changed the system quite a lot can you just explain to people what you have done especially with like the agroforestry and what you were telling me about um, you know the intersection with all the fields with your wild the wild seam which I, li- I like that term. So essentially kind of it, it took a number of years to kind of see the flaws in in the system or see the additional flaws so um my first yeah it was very clear when I came back that we couldn't carry on farming the way we were farming at the time it was quite clear that we had breakdowns in chemistry and that we didn't really have a particularly resilient system so I knew I had to do something and you know we were being inundated with black grass and rye grass at the time Uh, I mean to some extent we still are um although I've got on top of a lot of that so my initial thought process to sort those things out was very much with an arable mindset. So I kind of originally diversified my cropping. So I um, experimented with buckwheat, um, with hemp. Those two were the successful experiments. So on lentils, that was also successful. Um, less successful experiments with um, lupins and teff and a couple of other things as well. Um, and also began my journey into sort of older varieties more traditional varieties so I was kind of originally looking at trying to tackle those agronomic issues with essentially cultural controls of you know drilling later you know even later drilling in the spring different harvest timings um, allelopathic crops such as, such as the buckwheat which will kill other plants growing around it and sort of yeah, using crops that are taller or, or have more shading and those sorts of things to get on top of weeds and those things definitely help but it became quite clear that it wasn't enough. Um, and that was when I really, around the time I really realized that kind of I was a little bit obsessed with nature and ecology and getting that working on the farm and really building biodiversity on the farm. 
So I really started researching a lot into agroforestry, which I think is a fascinating subject. And yeah, led me down the path of kind of agroecological farming, which is what I now describe myself as. I describe myself as an agroecological mixed farmer. So um, essentially it's about trying to build ecology on the farm and using nature's toolkit to do that. So the livestock have come on um, and they're run in such a way that I don't have to prophylactically use anthelmintic, so uh, anti-worming drugs or anything like that. So instead they are moved regularly and they're on lays which have plants in which will help to deworm them. So worm burden is not an issue, touch wood so far. And they obviously dung on the ground. The dung is fantastic for dung beetles, which are a really key ecological species to have in the mix. But then looking at the agroforestry, uh, this to me was trying to make sure that I have as much edge effect as possible. I mean, we only got it as a trial in a 50 acre field at the moment, but the plan is to roll this out across the rest of the farm. But edge effect meaning kind of the edge of a, a pond, for instance, or the edge of a forest, that's where all the cool stuff happens. Middle of the pond, middle of a forest, not very much cool stuff. And certainly the middle of an arable field, very little cool stuff. So I've essentially moved to saying, well, I want at, at most sort of roughly a 40 meter wide field um, in terms of a, a monocropped arable field, for instance, which should in theory mean that kind of that field will get repopulated by insects from the edge of the agroforestry. And obviously you mentioned the wild seam. This is the project that um, having been working on it for, for a number of years now, I've actually finally done the initial fencing establishment and I'm in talks uh, with some funders to actually get it going in the next two years um, it, to a really kind of superb extent. Essentially, this is taking the idea of the agroforestry and kind of rolling that out across the whole farm. So the plan is to have this wild scene that connects right through the middle of the farm as a permanent area of organic cover, which can be left to kind of wild up and be um, managed with, you know, sensibly with light stocking density with cattle and then potentially with some other species in the future. And that wild scene will then key into uh, the wild margins on the edge of every single field. And then the plan is that those margins then feed into those agroforestry belts. So it's essentially a way of fully interconnecting every single bit of the farm together and trying to eliminate desertification on any part of my farm. That's the kind of true ethos behind it. So a kind of a really nature focused approach to how it's possible to farm. And just going off that, you know, this nature focused approach, how do we communicate what you're doing you know, which is, you know, you, you are doing so much on your farm. How do we communicate that to the public? Because, you know, we know that, you know, we're being told by the higher powers that be to be more sustainable, you know, environment first farming type thing. And that's seemingly what the public want, but it still feels like they're not, ma- they're not making that connection with what we as an industry actually do. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I think I, I'm obviously connecting on a, on a small scale through the work I do with my social media so through instagram through my blogs and podcasts and things like that um and i'm trying to obviously reach a greater number of people but i suppose is it necessarily the public's job to really understand that there are obviously some members of the public who find all that stuff really fascinating and genuinely understand the importance of it those are the people who are likely going to find me find those people on social media and they will shop in a way which encourages that. Um, to my mind, what I'm really trying to do here is, is show the potential of, of, of a way to farm, which really kind of embraces nature into the middle of it. I'm working with 
policymakers already, and I'm looking to enhance that work and really kind of drive a push for some really simplistic techniques which will enhance biodiversity on everybody's farm. Essentially, the way I look at it is that we're in a funny time at the moment because there's there's obviously a lot of infrastructure projects occurring, uh, a lot of building projects, especially here in the southeast, a lot of road projects. There's HS2. All of these things have biodiversity offsetting, which must occur. And normally the way that occurs is in a kind of trite, not particularly exciting way where you end up with these postage stamps of potentially good biodiversity. But they're postage stamps. And if those postage stamps aren't connected to anything else, they're pretty much useless. So instead, what's more important is to ensure that those postage stamps can be interlinked, interlinked to farmers who have my ethos, who are giving over a proportionally large amount of their farm to nature, and also linked into you know, incredible projects such as the Nepa State with their, their amazing project that they're doing there. So it's more to me about trying to figure some policy changes, show what I'm doing, not expect every farmer to do what I'm doing, because how can they all be interested in that? but instead derive some really simple policies that mean that farmers can, can do the type of farming that they want to do on their, but essentially some policies in place, which means that they'll then get paid to do some really simple things that mean that even though they're doing that type of farming, maybe on the majority of their farm, there are some really exciting nature corridors which aren't harmed or aren't harmed that badly by the type of farming that they're doing. Yeah. Uh, and do you do you think that mixed farming is the way to perhaps think about going i mean for me it's it's the only way to farm how i want to right in a way that encourages every you know as much ecology onto the farm as you can at the moment i only have cattle like i know that if i want to get you know more ecology i need to have pigs i need to have sheep i need to have some poultry about kind of you know all these things are necessary to have to actually really peak that biodiversity on farm for me biodiversity and ecology is my number one driver i often say at the moment that i almost feel like so so soil health is the number one farmer talks about and i feel like it's whilst it's a very laudable thing and a very important thing for farmers to be concentrating on i actually think it's they're slightly looking in the wrong direction for the same result so my view is that rather than focusing on soil health i think we should focus on ecological health by focusing on ecological health you get soil health as a kind of natural side product to that um, so the side effect of ecological health is good soil health but you'll also get more ecology if you focus just on soil health you'll get a load of really good stuff happening in the soil but very simply without dung in there especially ruminant dung but also monogastric poo so from chickens and pigs as well that's really critical to the overall system you really need that dung in there to gain the extra ecology and the extra connections in the soil. So can you create a pretty ecologically enhanced farm without livestock? Absolutely. Can that farm be regenerative and be improving year on year without livestock? Absolutely. But if you really want to absolutely you know, spike that as best you can, get the absolute best outcome and an outcome that really works for the you know, nature crisis that we are in at the moment, that, a lot of people don't really quite see then i believe you need to have livestock on farm just out of interest are you obviously when you came back to the farm you know looking back over the last nine years are you 
are you where you want to be or are you surprised at the route that you've taken what what looking back what's what are your thoughts on how you've progressed the farm so far I mean there are a couple of quite funny things so uh when I was a kid I remember saying to dad and he actually mentioned this recently that I just wanted to t- put the entire farm over to grass and just have livestock and then when I first came home I was originally like in my first year it was quite a kind of it was such a massive thing to try and understand like the costs of 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 growing crops we didn't have any any costing software I've built that since in in, in Excel but we didn't have any you know software to know how much a ton of wheat was costing or anything like that so that felt a bit kind of overwhelming to understand that so i remember when i first came back thinking well i can understand how much an animal produces or costs to produce so i originally used to think about that then but i i would never have imagined when i first came home that i would end up here i didn't think i would enjoy farming when i came home i thought it was just would be better a better lifestyle than than my time in london and it just so happened well a i didn't like the type of farming we did when i came home so i was right about that it so happens that the route I've gone down has led to me finding a type of farming that I really love. However, in terms of being an end goal, nowhere near. And I, I kind of feel like, I think if you ever stop learning, then you failed. Like, if, you know, point you think, oh, crack this, get out of the industry. You're no use in that industry whatsoever. You become lazy if you get to that point because you can, you know, even now I, I get to points when I feel like I'm learning less and still learning things. And then there's always something huge, a massive learning thing, or like, you know, the weather throws something up that you but like, there's always a lot to learn. And I feel it's so important to always be open to that learning. So, uh, I mean, I'm ecstatic to the, at the place I've got the farm to, but for instance, this, this wild scene project that I'm just starting at the moment, I know full well, that's something I'm going to do. And I've, I've had a plan for a long time as to how I want to do it. And I've been lucky enough to, be able to chat to charlie from nep about my project and that has kind of steered it a little bit in a direction and i've chatted to a load of other experts about it who've steered it in in other directions as well but i also know this is very much my take on what i want to do on the wilding project and it's not how those other guys would do it but that's not to say it's wrong it's just my version of it and i'll know then when i implement it that you'll implement and think well i wouldn't do it that way again Exactly the same as my agroforestry. I look at that and think, I'm so glad I did it that way, but it has produced an absolutely tremendous amount of learning for how I would then implement that project again in the future. And I know if I then implemented that new version of that project, it would change again in the future and again after that. So, um, yeah, I think it's critical to be, to continue to be open to change and expect your farm to be continually changing. I mean, I've just done a very big infrastructure project with fencing on the farm. And it's taken me a long time to get here because it's obviously been a very expensive project. But I know this is infrastructure that's in the right place that will never move. And I've built enough flexibility into it that it won't ever stop me doing something in the future. Thank you to George for telling us about the changes he's made on farm. It goes to show the amount of environmental work farmers do. Next up is Jenny Jeffries, where we discuss all things food. She's the author of award-winning cookbooks For the Love of the Land and For the Love of the Sea. They're a true celebration of the best of British producers and the best of British farmers. Hi Jenny, it's lovely to have you with us today on the podcast. We're obviously going to talk about your um, well, your, your books, your cookbooks, uh, your life and farm and a little bit about 
um, the blog that you are doing for us on Farmers Guardian as well. So let's just start with a little bit about you, your background and how you came into farming. Well, hello. Good morning, Emily. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, So I don't actually come from a farming background. It was when I went on a blind date with my arable farming husband, John, and we fell in love. We went traveling and uh, he introduced me to his farm, which is a, a little 750 acre farm in a place called Little Gramsden in South Cambridgeshire. And we grow winter wheat, spring barley, linseed, beans um, and stuff like that and it all came about from witnessing my first ever family harvest and I remember being so incredibly overwhelmed and surprised at the hard work and the raw passion that really goes into producing just a bowl of cereal or a loaf of bread for our kitchen tables Um, and I I was really inspired by his story and so my story cookbooks that really celebrate British harvest and champion British farmers and fishermen and women were really born out of my own shameful ignorance about food provenance. Um, So that's a little bit about me. I'm also um, a mother to two young girls, Heidi, who's six, and Florence, who's four. So between us, we're sort of keeping the farm alive and it's a really lovely place. We're on a private airfield. We have nine luxury self-catering cottages that I help to market and manage. So there's always life on the farm. There's a real buzz around the place, which is really lovely. And I think, you know, you're not you're definitely not alone in, um, you know, you're talking about ignorance to the, to the food production side. I don't think it is ignorance. I think it's, you know, we we all take it for granted whether you're in, I think whether you're in the industry or out actually. And now it's quite an interesting time to be able to to bridge that gap and, and really celebrate um British food and farming especially with everything else that's going on um but let's talk about the books because they are firstly amazing you know that I rate them really highly and they're you know not only are they informative but they're they're really beautiful books as well as you know you said the um the stories aren't they yes yeah they're pretty much stories as well as recipes often showcasing the farmers and the fishermen's produce. And it's, you're right, it's such an exciting time for British agriculture generally. There's so much going on and it's just a really exciting time to really connect the producer-consumer and to really have more transparency in the supply chain and to really bridge that gap between producer and consumer, town and country, and to really celebrate British agriculture. Tell us a little bit about your books then, because um, obviously we've got the... Uh the next edition coming out soon so take us back a little bit because for the love of the land for example celebrates you know it really does celebrate farmers up and down the country and they you know the, the recipes were obviously given to you by British farmers. That's right so my debut book was published in July 2020 so just after the first lockdown in the pandemic and I invited 40 amazing farmers from all over the UK to contribute both the recipe and their own words about what British farming means to them so I didn't write the book but I compiled it I researched it I spoke to some brilliant people and it's actually a real privilege to be in a situation and a position where you can speak to the most amazing food producers all over the country and Minette Batters the president of the National Farmers Union Union very kindly wrote the forward to the book which was lovely um, and it was received really enthusiastically from not only the agricultural community but um, far and wide and beyond it won an award for best cookbook in women and homes book awards last year which I'm very proud of and for a leading national women's 
magazine to champion British farming is incredible. And it just shows that you're right, absolutely correct, that people are interested in where their food comes from. People do want to engage with the food producers and to learn more about what they can do to help and to really feed themselves in an economical and fun way. It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, even from my side of things, every time I meet a new producer or a different farmer, I go away so grateful, inspired. It, it gives you that push to want to know more about your food and what you're feeding your family, especially, you know, you know I'm like you, I've got two young children and it's so important, this conversation. So I think, you know, we talk about how farming really has to get its message across, but sometimes it doesn't have to be on social media or anything. You know, books like yours can really, really, really be that bridge yeah definitely there's such fantastic mediums and like social media which I think if used with respect is a powerful tool to engage and connect um, and with the books I just find it it just gives me goose pimples that people are generally interested about where their food comes from and they it's one of those subjects that the more you know the more you want to know and having lived on the farm with John for eight years now I feel so amazed and privileged that every year I see the seasons go by on the farm and really have a deep connection with mother nature and the world around me which I never had before and it's just it, it just gives me such a, a warm fuzzy feeling and really warm inside that actually you do have this deeper connection with the countryside and I think that's one of the positive things that's come out of the pandemic is that people have been walking through the countryside and have a deeper connection with their immediate environment which I think is really important to educate that I think people have a greater respect for the country because of that which can only be a good thing. Yeah and I do wonder actually as well like obviously you know you're completely right the pandemic gave us a renewed passion for food we all slowed down a little bit didn't we we were able to be at well we you know we were at home more cooking more perhaps shopping a little more local as well especially with you know like the delivery of food boxes and that sort of thing but I do wonder now if you know slightly off topic but with the war in Ukraine for example the back end of the pandemic are we going to be looking to buy more locally should we be looking to you know know where our food comes from a bit more you know there's that food security aspect of it as well are we gonna go back a little bit you know to grandparents um our grandparents era eating x y and z and you know it's 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 quite it's it's a big question Definitely, it's a very loaded question because I think you touched on a few topics there. You talked about food miles, buying local, climate change, going back to the sort of 1940s and 50s of like being really, really um, frugal and being really careful with our money because of cost of living and the increasing of fuel, feed prices, fertiliser, cost of living, shortage of labour the war in Ukraine, there's just so much going on at the moment that really affects everybody, but specifically more probably than anyone else is the agricultural industry, because at the end of the day, they are putting food on the tables. And there are currently 864 million people in the world who don't have enough food to eat and who are malnutrition. And 8.4 of those people who don't have enough food to eat is in this country, which is the equivalent of the population of London, which is just an astronomical, scary, statistic and one that probably isn't talked about enough and so we talk about food poverty I mean there's just so much poverty in this country and it's just going to get worse I think between the next six months to a year 
when the nights get shorter and the nights get colder, the days get shorter and the nights get colder, um, people will realise that, you know, we have to be so dependent on Russia for like fuel and electricity and, and things like that, that there, there may be some really stark, difficult decisions that everyone's going to have to make from right high up in government political level, right down to the consumer on the ground, who really is just thinking about where their next bread and milk is coming from. So I think there's lots of issues there. Um, and with buying local, buying sustainably, buying seasonal and above all buying British, which is my main message, it's not cheap to do that. Um, and I think it's going to be really challenging for people. And I think we're going to have to really reduce our disposable incomes and really think carefully about how we prepare our food so it goes further and it goes a long way. People are feeding lots of families and lots of children. Um, I think the government can do a lot more in providing free school meals right across the board, not just in England, but in Northern Ireland, um, Wales and Scotland. Um, and also really reach out to the, to the voter and to the people who really sort of make a difference. There's so much going on, so many challenges, and it's going to be a really, as my grandmother would say, we're living in interesting times. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying there. Um, I think it's interesting to, you know, we're not going to solve these problems overnight, obviously. How can we therefore move forwards with our message that actually, you know, you're right, things do come at a cost, but are there tweaks and changes that we can make to our lifestyle while supporting British? That sort of thing. That's, that's another interesting conversation because, you know, these are probably conversations that we should be having at school, at educational level, food waste, how to cook with leftovers, you know, that sort of thing. And I know it does sound very 1950s, but actually it's not, is it? It's sustainable, it's sustainable living and that is the era that we're living in. It is, definitely. I think we've had quite an enjoyable sort of, hedonistic dare I say sort of way of life and really sort of wasting everything um, and I think everybody does have it comes down to an individual moral ethical responsibility now more than ever to really reduce our food, food waste and to have that moral obligation to really have be a bit more empathetic with society and you know um, it's just so difficult people are going to have to make really difficult decisions um, and you know, a third of all food produced globally goes to waste, which is about 1.3 billion tonnes of food, which is just a, a huge amount. So we can all do things and little things go a long way. You have this ripple effect. Um, and so, for example, you can write a shopping list and stick to it. Shop local at your farmer's markets or some supermarkets such as Audi and Morrison's really support 100% British produce. Um, and also... Um, creating um, food, food waste from, from meals can be prepared to, into curries and soups and salads and hot pots and they can be frozen and a good piece of cut of meat can go a really long way for example if people have the space they can start growing their own food which maybe they've experienced before during the pandemic even if it's just a small tomato plant on the windowsill we can all do our little bit just to help make life go a little bit further I think um, and I think you're right I think it all comes from education and reaching out to those 8.9 million primary school children in 24 and a half thousand schools and that's just England alone and there's some fantastic charity initiatives by the NFU education, LEAF education 
and Kids Country in the East of England Agricultural Society. There's lots of charitable initiatives that are going a very long way in providing teachers with resources in how to integrate farming and agricultural education into the national curriculum. And there are some really, really good websites out there um, to really reach out to all those people. Even at home as well, I'm sure you're the same, but my two just love being in the kitchen, free reign, eating whatever they can before it goes into the recipe. But that sort of thing, like just getting a bit more hands-on with children. But let's talk about your your next book. Um, have you used, what's the process been this time? Is it different farmers? Have you revisited some farmers? It's a mixture of everything. So my new book is due out on the 11th of July. It's called For the Love of the Land Too. And I approached it pretty much the same way. Um, I asked 40, another 40 farmers to contribute the same, um, another recipe and some new words about what British farming means to them published by the amazing Meze Publishing, which is a fantastic team behind it. Um, and I did the same sort of experience. I just picked up the phone, researched on social media and websites and award winners and people who are doing amazing pioneering initiatives such as specifically regenerative agriculture, sustainability, um, communities such as Sotopia Farm in London um, and other regenerative community farms up and down the country and eventually word got out about the book and people started asking me to be in it which was really flattering so it's a really exciting process and it's a process that I really really enjoy all the PR and marketing is great fun and um, but it's really hard work but the actual sort of research part of it is really enjoyable because you're discovering and you're meeting and you're talking to all these different farmers and because of the pandemic I didn't have a book launch for my first two books um, so I'm having a big party this year on my farm which is really exciting um, and this time around I was actually able to visit some of the farms um, when they were been having the photography so um, the publisher commissions the food photographer to go and visit the farms and I was fortunate enough to go this time not during lockdown um, I'm fortunate enough to go and experience a session and to actually meet some of the farmers themselves which has been really lovely and I think what's um what's I mean I'm a huge foodie um as you know as are you we've met obviously through um, your cookbook being featured in the Farmers Guardian and then we're together in the uh, Guild of Food Writers, which is amazing. But food means so much more than just eating. It's, you know, it evokes so many memories and, and I think within the farming community as well, those recipes have been passed down and I think that's a, a really lovely aspect and a really lovely way actually of... Um, it's, a, it's, it's kind of capturing a piece of history, isn't it? You know, these recipes, you can see it's, it's, it's almost a circular process that these sort of recipes, using really just good quality food, simple recipes, and they just come back around. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much longevity and so much celebration in family recipes, especially, that have been handed down through generations and generations. And some of the farmers are like ninth generation farmers who have got this amazing sort of produce, um, which they eat every day themselves. And what better way to share than to celebrate these recipes that have been handed down from families from generations to generations and to really get the message out there at the same time and hopefully in an informative entertaining accessible way that you can just bake up and cook up in the kitchen with the children there's some beautiful images in the books that are hopefully really nostalgic and really um heart 
heartwarming. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really proud of the books. Um, they are a slice of social history, British social history, and especially with agriculture and the fishing industries. And yeah, I'm really proud of them. Is there anything particularly that you learned going through this process? Anything about farming or, you know, is there anything that, that stands out to you from doing the cookbooks? So much. Just the real passion that farmers have. It's not a job. It's a way of life. And they just absolutely love what they're doing, albeit all the sort of current challenges that we're facing at the moment that we mentioned briefly before. They just really, really love what they do. And they are really passionate about finding ways in which they can farm whilst being environmentally friendly, looking after nature, looking after the wildlife, increasing biodiversity and really improving waterways and watersheds and doing the best they can in, in not just producing food, but literally being custodians of our countryside and looking after it. And I think people just take that for granted. And I think the message is to go out there and, and speak to them and you know try and engage with them. I think there's always been a challenge of the farmers engaging with the consumer, but I think the responsibility is also the consumer engaging with the food producers. And I think that's becoming more and more apparent as time goes on. Absolutely. Let's go from your new cookbook. Is there a particular recipe that you are excited about or that stood out or that is your you know I won't say favorite because they're all obviously as good as each other <laughs> but is there something that particularly you know stood out or tickled your fancy yeah so the front cover of the book features a beetroot and chocolate cake oh, which nice. is a lovely yeah. recipe <laughs> I can't go wrong with chocolate or beetroot yeah. um, <laughs> and it's really it's a lovely recipe contributed by Farrington Mellow Yellow who produced the first British uh, seed to bottle rapeseed oil um, and it's a lovely recipe it's very straightforward and believe you me Emily if I can do it anybody can <laughs> um, I, and it's great and it's quite regal looking and it's very very it's a real crowd pleaser and it's a really lovely recipe and it's delicious and obviously it's all about balance so a bit of beetroot bit of chocolate I think we're yeah. we're ticking that box there aren't we <laughs> um okay so I would love to do some quick fire questions with you all about food um so are you ready I'm ready okay your favorite uh, meat for a roast Jenny what would that be um lamb beef and pork oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I understand yeah I think you know, lamb's up there for me to be honest I'll sit there in a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon or whatever and we choose a roast and I'm, I'm there forever trying to weigh up the pros and cons of, of eating lamb pork or beef really yeah okay I'll let you have that one that's fine okay. um favorite meal of the day breakfast Oh, snap. See, I go to bed <laughs> thinking about breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. I think What you, can I have when I wake up? <laughs> my favourite breakfast is a buffet breakfast at a hotel because there's just so much to choose from and it's just really, really lovely. <laughs> what about your favourite go-to snack? Probably brunch bars, yeah. um, which are probably quite healthy, but some with chocolate on as well, which can be a little bit unhealthy. But they're quite easy, really accessible, very quick and not too expensive. What about if you were having a dinner party? Mm -hmm. What would, what would be, what's your go-to meal? What's your, you know, your showstopper that you know that everyone's going to be like, Jenny, that's amazing. 
okay, I'd have a three course meal starting off with baked devil crabs, which is a lovely recipe contributed by the RNLI in my book, For the Love of the Sea. You can make it up the night before and then just pop it in the oven. So you can spend a lot of time in the kitchen when you've got friends around and entertaining. So it's nice just to bring them out. And then probably a beef wellington, which is another lovely recipe in my new book, For the Love of the Land too, which is contributed by Yo Valley, which is very exciting to have Tim Mead sharing his words of wisdom in the book and that's always a crowd pleaser and again very accessible and very straightforward to do followed by my really favorite family recipe of chocolate puddle pudding um which my kids just go mad for chocolate paddle pudding puddle puddle okay and what's that what's that consist of so it's basically just a chocolate cake with a puddle which is just water and um cocoa powder and you just pop it in the oven and you just got this really rich chocolate cake with just a puddle of chocolate basically and Sounds good. It's, it's really fun to look the bowl out yeah <laughs> I'll have to share the <laughs> please do yeah. <laughs> yeah okay last one if you were on a desert island and you were only allowed to eat one meal what would it be oh my gosh that's really difficult <laughs> probably um Calor- calories don't matter it's just okay. whatever you want Probably just a fireball steak, beef steak, good quality cut of meat and just um, barbecued on the open charcoal or flame. That will probably be my my favourite thing. Sounds good <laughs> enough to me on a beach eating steak. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, the last thing I really want to touch on, Jenny, is, you know, do you have any tips or advice for, you know, people who kind of want to look at shopping more locally or they want to... Um, try and support British farmers a little bit more like you know on your weekly to-do list or your weekly um, you know tasks do you do you go to the market do you meal plan anything like that that we can share to to help consumers kind of get into it a little bit a little bit more yeah so there's lots of things a combination of lots of things that people can do so write a shopping list and stick to it and do a meal plan maybe on a Sunday evening to take you right through the week and think about any meals that any leftovers you can freeze or then make into further recipes there's a fantastic resource of online recipes and books um, that you can go to and there's lots of recipes that um, are really useful for that Um, and also to go and support your local farmers by going to the local farmers market or your local farm shop, your fishmonger, your butchers, your bakers, your delicatessens, all these people are working so hard to put food on our table. And there's more transparency in that supply chain when they literally are sort of buying direct from the farmer or you're buying from the farmer or the fisherman yourself. So um, there are a couple of supermarkets that I mentioned before who really do support British produce. Um, and also tackling food waste, just be careful about, you know, um, wasting food and just seeing what you can do, maybe make it into a curry or a hot pot or a soup or something like that. Okay, Jenny, so just remind us when the next book is out and how people can get their hands on a copy if they wish to. Yeah, so For the Love the Land 2, published by Meze Publishing, is out on the 11th of July and you can purchase it from all good bookshops including my website jennyjeffries.co.uk and also Meze Publishing Um, and I'd just like to add that 10% of my net profits will be donated to Yellow Wellies which is the Farm Safety Foundation which really improve and help and advise on health and safety around the farm and also highlight the issues of mental health awareness. Brilliant, thank you Jenny. Thank you for having me. Thank you to both George and Jenny. That's it for this week. 
but don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite platform. You can also learn more about our fantastic Farming Can campaign and Jenny's new food blog by going to fginsight.com forward slash farming can. That's it from me, but see you again next time.